The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. This is Charles Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Charles. Well, today we are dealing with a subject that probably may cross the minds of some people on occasion, but I bet it's one that uh, many of our listeners may not have ever considered, but is a very important one. And uh, that question is, why does the Bible view kidnapping as a capital crime, a capital offense. But as always on this podcast, we like to get behind the larger issue of the question. So Andrea, what would be behind that question, do you think? Well, first of all, let's define kidnapping. The Bible refers to it as man-stealing, and obviously that would include men and women, man in the sense of human. And it's important to go back to God's law and say, in what way is kidnapping or man-stealing a violation of God's law? Well, for starters, you can isolate three of the Ten Commandments where kidnapping is a violation. And why, when we talk about a capital offense, we're talking about that the Bible calls for the death penalty. There are certain things that God says, if these things occur, then this is what, this is what should happen. So in the case of murder the person forfeits his life. In the case of adultery, homosexuality, ultimate incorrigibility of somebody who will never correct, continuing to be an outlaw in terms of God's law. Well, kidnapping falls under this as well. So the first commandment that it violates is the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother, so your days may be long upon the land. In other words, that commandment isn't just a personal commandment that applies to individuals and their parents. It refers to the family as the basic institution of society. So when a kidnapping occurs, it's a violation of the jurisdiction of the family under God. Next, in terms of the commandment, thou shalt not kill, Yes, not all kidnappings result in somebody's life being taken, but people are damaged sometimes much worse by the things that happen to them, very hard to undo psychologically, physically, etc. So the commandment that basically says not only should we not kill, we should not harm other people, that falls under the commandment not to kill. And of course, the commandment that says thou shalt not steal Well, there you have man-stealing, and that is prohibited by Scripture. And when duly convicted at the testimony of witnesses, that person who and those people who participated in that, biblically speaking, should lose their lives. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are saying, okay, we know about kidnappings. You know, you have divorces and the, the spouses aren't talking to each other and somebody goes ahead and takes one, you know, the other person's, uh, the one who has custody of the children or some deviant wants to sexually abuse a child and would kidnap. Well, I don't think that that's the major area where kidnapping takes place. And I think a lot of people aren't familiar with the idea 
of medical kidnapping. Whenever I suggest that to people, they're like, huh, what? Medical kidnapping? What are you talking about? Well, today we have a guest, which I will let Charles introduce, who has some experience in this particular aspect of kidnapping. Yes, we are very, very pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Jerry Lynn Ward. Jerry um, is an activist on behalf of family. She has been a longtime friend of the Calcedon Foundation and has some experience in talking about and dealing with this topic. So, Jerry Lynn, we are very glad to welcome you to the podcast. How are you today? I'm fine, and thank you for having me. So uh, could you define for our listeners who would be puzzling over the, the positioning of the word medical and the words kidnapping together in the same sentence, what, what exactly is medical kidnapping? Medical kidnapping is when, when hospitals or other medical providers interfere with a family relationship but by deciding that that family can no longer have any kind of, of say in the medical treatment that is going to be provided by the uh, doctors. And if, if I can preface this a little bit, I am an attorney and I have represented health providers for over for 20 years. I don't represent hospitals, but I have a lot of experience with looking at medical charts and representing different kinds of providers. But I have also acted as an activist uh, in this particular area in, in two particular cases. Uh, medical kidnapping can occur not only with children, it can occur with elderly people. And there are two agents, there are two types of agencies that come into play with this in most states. One is whatever the Child Protective Services is because what happens is that these hospitals will enlist Child Protective Services or Adult Protective Services uh, which deals with adults, often elderly or disabled adults, in interfering with the family relationships with the particular uh, person who's receiving uh, health care treatment and will cut th those family members out of any ability to make medical decisions even if they have even if they are a par parent a guardian or have medical power of attorney I think that it's important to get on uh, at the very beginning here also that when we talk about this topic and and the involvement of hospitals that and Please correct me if I'm wrong, but that this would not take place without the full support, if not the initiative, of state agencies, not just simply privately yes. owned hospitals. Uh, yes, that's what I'm talking. That's what I mean. Uh, every state has some form of child protective services. They may call it something else, uh, and they also have an agency, which may it may all be in the same agency with div divisions called different by different titles. Uh, there's also adult protective services. And I have seen medical kidnapping happen in both of these different, uh, with, with, with these two different kinds of individuals. I've seen it happen with the, the elderly. I've seen it happen, uh, attempts to do it with uh, regard to disabled folks who may be disabled because of some medical condition they have. And I've seen it happen with children. So uh, I've had experience with this in one case where 
I acted as more of an activist and, and in uh, two cases where I acted as attorney. Now, I don't do family law, I'll tell you that, but uh, I did have some experience, uh, two experiences with this kind of thing with respect to the state agencies who were assisting the hospitals in medical kidnapping. So let me interject here and say a lot of people would say, well, you know what, doctors know best. If the doctor thinks someone needs a transfusion, it's incidental to that person's good health if the parents say, no, we don't want it. Or if the medical profession says, grandma or grandpa needs this, and the family says no. So don't we want to defer to doctors? Aren't they the experts? Well, I have a problem with that because they they are given almost godlike status and i think that's wrong i mean there may be some situations where family members don't have uh, the best the best interest in mind for their family members and and i've seen that because i've represented nursing homes uh, and i've kind of seen it on that end too but most of these kind of cases that we're talking about that have been in the news have been cases where i think there was a real problem with what cps and aps was was doing uh, even in the area of cancer, where uh, young, where even the young people, you know, teenagers, young teenagers, or maybe mid-teen teenagers, don't want uh, cancer treatment and want to try alternative treatments. You cannot tell me that doctors know everything about cancer, or that that alternative treatments may not be effective, uh, because you know these doctors are not God. And people have different opinions about treatment, and I do not think that parent, the, the opinions of family members or parents uh, should be ignored in these cases. But when a hospital makes a decision like this, they often bulldoze the family members. And sometimes, even if the hospital has a good position with that, they, the way that they behave towards the family members makes them, them totally distrusted and of course, when a family member distrusts a hospital, they're going to want second opinions. Uh, they're perhaps going to want to move their loved ones to a different hospital setting, and they should have that right. But oftentimes, if you ask for a second opinion, that's when the hospital moves in order to stop you and takes it to C CPS or APS to stop you from getting that second opinion. That also ha happens with uh, attempts to transfer to a different provider or, or hospital. Even though patients and their surrogate decision makers have an absolute right to transfer the care of, of that uh, individual to a different provider or to ask for second opinions. So it's a, it's a very mixed thing. There may be occasions where maybe doctors are, are making a right decision, but then as soon as the individuals try to get a second opinion because they don't, you know, they want a second opinion, which is totally reasonable, then they make their move. So that's a hard question to answer because of the methods and the procedures that these hospitals use in order to have their way. And, and I'll tell you, sometimes this is a, a, a professional jealousy type situation. A few years ago, there was a situation down 
in Houston where there was a dispute between two hospitals about uh, about diagnosis of a child and what the treatment should be and the fight was on and the fight didn't end up being hospital to hospital it ended up being against the parents and the hospital who disagreed were the ones who got CPS involved and then started attacking the parents with claims that they had Munchausen by proxy, which I think has pretty much been discredited, but they still use. Would you uh, and, explain and what that is? Munchausen by proxy is the claim that there are parents that make their children sick or that because they want attention or that go get go to doctors and somehow manipulate doctors into giving treatments that are not needed, which is ridiculous because there are objective tests that doctors perform that, uh, of course, doctors use history. And parents could give incorrect history, but any doctor who goes in and does a procedure without an objective test uh, should lose his license. Okay. Charles, could you comment on, as a pastor and someone who has studied God's law, why jurisdiction matters even if the family isn't necessarily medically correct? Why does the jurisdiction of the family matter? Well, it matters because of something that, uh, well, that, that God's law clearly states, and it reminds me of something that uh, one of the first words I think I ever heard Dr. Rustuni speak on that uh, remarkable PBS special that was done in which he pointed out to Bill Moyers um, that the Holy Scriptures do not know anything about treason against the state, but treason against the family is the main source of treason in Holy Scripture. And as you pointed out, um, this is the main issue in this particular topic. It represents, kidnapping represents uh, an attack or treason against the family. And uh, because the family is God's central focus of, of growth and uh, dominion in the world, uh, that is why this is such a terrible crime and why the family should be you know, the main source of information and concern. I would like to share a story that I heard, and it goes to the point that you were saying earlier, Andrea and Jerry, responding that doctors don't know everything. And um, this was a story told by a woman who herself was a doctor and had been diagnosed with a, a fatal condition for which she was not expected to live, but she did. And uh, so she'd written a lot about this particular thing, and she got a call one day, she said, from another doctor who was doing research on people who had been given uh, diagnoses of terminal illness, but yet they survived. And he'd come across a case in particular, uh, a case of a young man who had gone to college out on the East Coast, and he had been diagnosed with a condition that at that time required him to have a full amputation of his leg, really almost at the hip. He had some sort of cancerous condition. Well, um, the, the man who called this doctor said, I, I'm trying to find the story about what happened because he did survive. So the woman who told the story, herself the doctor, said she tracked down all the information and she called the hospital where this thing had been done 20 years earlier and got in touch with the physician to get the details. And apparently this young man decided he would not have an amputation surgery. He would rather go back to his home in the Midwest to die. And so he went back home. His family took him in. His church prayed for him. But he didn't die. He survived. And um, so the doctor doing this research called the physician who had diagnosed him in the emergency room or whatever it was 
and said, oh, yes, I remember that case. I, I was right out of medical school. So it was a terrible situation for that young man. He said, uh, I, I assume you're calling on behalf of the family. She said, no, doctor, I'm calling on behalf of the patient. She, he said, what do you mean? She said, he survived. He's alive. And she said, with that, he hung up the phone. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. He, she tried repeatedly to call him back, and he never would return her calls. Um, so uh, this is a prime example of how uh, doctors certainly don't know everything and why families ought to be, and by God's law, uh, are the main source of decision-making and information in this case. So, Jerry, is it true that the demographic of people who are most preyed on in this area are the poor and families of those, for example, children who have terminal diseases, are they not often the ones victimized by the pressure to do what the doctor says? I, th I think that's true, but in the case of Justine Pelletier, I don't think her family was uh, poor. I think they were fairly well off, which is why they were they successfully fought for her release. But it is true in a lot of cases. And I'll tell you another demographic that's at risk is those people whose children are going through different kinds of, of medical trials. Uh, the one case that I had in court involved a child who was going through, who was part of a research project out of Boston Children's, and uh, it, the treatment that she was given was successful, uh, but she, she came to, you know, she lived in Texas, she didn't live in Boston, and she was getting treatment out of a hospital in Dallas in the interim after she, she, she essentially had some sort of bone marrow transplant. It wasn't for leukemia. It was for another condition. And uh, so her mother was taking care of her and taking her on a regular basis up to a hospital in Dallas to be monitored. But of course, the researchers in Boston also wanted to monitor. And at one point, they uh, she, she, she had been going back to Boston for that. But at one point, the mother didn't want to take her back because of how hard the trip was on her and also because she had to receive intravenous fluid every night and how was she going to get in on the, the plane in a post-9-11 world. But finally she went back. Uh, she didn't take the fluid with her because she didn't know how to get it on. Uh, she told the, when she got there that evening, she told them. Uh, they blew her off. So the next day when she was went for the monitoring, she was, the child was a little bit dehydrated. Uh, they didn't do anything about that. They hi hydrated her. But then the mother felt that the way that the, the girl was being treated, they wanted to cause her to gain some weight and uh, were force feeding her uh, through a tube, you know, tube feeding that the mother felt was going too fast. And, and, she, and the mother started feeling, well, these people care more about their research and making sure it looks good than they do about my child. So she started arguing and said she was going to withdraw the child from the research program. Well, lo and behold, a day or so after that, here comes CPS workers from Texas marching into the hospital, taking custody of that child. So 
it, that shows me that not only is it a matter of doctors sometimes thinking they know more, but sometimes there are economic factors and prestige factors that go into the thinking of these hospitals and doctors when it comes to making decisions like that. And that comes into play during these medical or can come into uh, play during these medical trials. So that's a one place to be very careful when you have a child in a, in a medical trial. Now this, I think, is a prime example of uh, a point that Dr. Rushduni made many times, and that is where the family is de-emphasized. Uh, the state will, or the church, the, 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 the state generally will assume you know, family-like authority, God-like authority. We know what is best for your child in terms of education, in terms of medicine, and everything else. Uh, Jerry, I'll mention a case that I'm familiar with, um, a friend of mine in another state. Uh, his daughter uh, was going through some emotional problems and wound up in a unit at a hospital uh, for teenagers dealing with these kind of things. And while he was away, uh, his wife got a phone call from the hospital saying, uh, they wanted to move the daughter to a group home. And the wife said, well, I, I'd rather talk to my husband before you do that. But CPS came in, took control, moved her to a group home, and it took them a year, a year to get their daughter back. Uh, when you're dealing with, with psych hospitals, that's a big risk for anyone, because of, especially if you have insurance. There have been some real pro issues come, come up here in Texas with that. Uh, one time, just recently, there's a case where, uh, and I can't remember if the daughter was over 18, but she was still with the family. A, a couple uh, took their daughter up to a psych hospital in the Dallas area and were, were trying to get outpatient services. Well, because of the kind of insurance they have, the, the, the psych hospital made a unilateral decision that that they were going to insist on inpatient and, and almost and tried to physically stop that family from leaving. And the family essentially pushed their way out and uh, the father ended up I think that both maybe both the mother and father ended up with criminal charges against them, but they got that daughter out. And I don't remember whether the criminal charges have been uh, disposed of or not. But that you talk about demographics. Uh, when you're dealing with emotional uh, problems and you're going to a psych hospital, you have to be very careful. In fact, I would recommend most uh, Christians stay away from them anyway. And see, I think a lot of people, when they hear this, are sort of shocked. They think, well, maybe this happens, but it's very isolated. In your experience and with your knowledge, is it an isolated thing, just a little here or there, or is it very prevalent? Well, I think it's fairly pre prevalent, and, and I have to tell you this, uh, every session, almost every uh, legislative session, I've worked uh, with CCHR, the Citizens Council uh, for Human Rights, which I'll tell you right now, uh, they were formed by, by Dr. Thomas Saz, uh, S-Z-A-Z, the uh, psychiatrist who took issue with his own profession uh, to a large extent, and it does involve a lot of Scientologists, but uh, it, which I don't agree with them, but they are very good at looking at laws that allow this kind of thing and trying to stop laws that allow 
when someone goes to an emergency room for them to be shuttled off immediately to a psychiatric facility without even any kind of testing for whether or not the problem could be organic because there there are a lot of issues that you can have that that could be organic like sepsis like if you come into a hospital with sepsis you you could look like you're having a, a some sort of mental breakdown because because of what sepsis does uh, to your your cognitive state so i've been involved with that but yeah uh, they that's where a lot of people are kidnapped not just medically kidnapped not just children so you could find yourself on your, the way to a psychiatric facility with no treatment for your sepsis which is highly dangerous right right so um, it seems to me that hearing that this is more than just incidental, that this happens fairly frequently, the critics of our position or even bringing this to light might say, well, you're going to make it so that people don't bring their children or their family members who are ill to hospitals. And so you're actually going to compromise people's health, which is why the state needs to intervene. How do you respond to that? Well, there's kind of a reason why I don't represent hospitals in my practice, even though I represent other health providers, because I would do everything I could ever possibly do to avoid going to a hospital. The only thing I can say is, yes, there are issues that you need to go to a hospital for, and there are issues that you need to take your children to a hospital, but you've got to be ever vigilant about that. You've got to really watch your behavior, perhaps get, get uh, some sort of counsel about your behavior. If you, if you start thinking things are going downhill and you, and you start thinking the care is not uh, up to the standard that you would like to, to see it, then you need to seek counsel of some type, whether it's a lawyer or someone else, to help you through that because if you raise too much cane at the hospital, you may encounter these kind of problems. I mean, hospitals have barred family members with, with notices of trespass, all sorts of things. And, and I've seen this not only in news stories, but in some of the work that I've done with respect to these hospitals wanting to withdraw life-sustaining treatments and the family members objecting to that uh, and getting barred from the hospital when they objected too much. I, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this from God's law, but all I know is you've got to have somebody in your corner when this starts happening. Well, I was just going to say that uh, I think that in most metropolitan areas of any appreciable size and maybe some that are even small it's possible to find uh doctors i mean bona fide legitimate board certified mds family practice who are very much aware of some of these things now their numbers are small compared to the larger population of uh, doctors in practice but i'm i've been fortunate in my family and many other christian families in the area where i live there are a number of doctors that are like this and they there's actually an association these are uh, this is a large association of doctors who uh who are not happy with Medicare and Medicaid. They, are, they don't participate in the usual insurance programs. They're cash up front. They give discounts. And they're very, very uh, skeptical, if not somewhat hostile, uh, to the accepted practices that you've been describing, for example, Jerry, 
um, and uh, they are help, very glad to help out patients and give them information and uh, put them on notice about, okay, here's where you need to be careful about this. And, you know, they don't take their marching orders from the big pharmaceutical companies and that sort of thing. So I would encourage our listeners to be enterprising and check around with, uh, within their own Christian networks uh, for, for doctors who can be recommended, who are aware of these issues and uh, are doing what they can to help out. I think you're talking about the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS. That certainly and is. Phyllis, I think so, yes. Yeah. Phyllis Schlafly's uh, son, Andy Schlafly, is their general counsel. And yes, uh, but, but one caveat is a lot of these hospitals, especially when we're talking about uh, patients in ICU where a lot of these issues arise, use what are called hospitalists. And they're, they're physicians who are not necessarily, it depends on the uh, state law in the, in the state that you're in. Uh, a, a lot of them are not uh, employees necessarily, but are parts, are part of practices that are contracted with by the hospital to provide care in ICU. So, but it would behoove uh, p- people who have good family doctors that perhaps have privileges at, at hospitals to be part of, try to be part of the of care in the hospital if that's even possible. That's a good advice, and I can say this: it, it confirms for me why the family has to be strengthened in terms of taking its jurisdiction that's given by God seriously and why the church needs to support families in such things. So going back to what you eat, the sorts of things you put in your body, the, uh, the likelihood that there's a lot of everyday practices that will lead you to heart disease or cancer or diabetes. And one of the best ways not to be in a situation like this is to pay attention to the myriad of information that tells you how nutrition can not only combat some of the things that people are plagued by, but prevent them. So that when you go in, you go in knowledgeably, and you only go if you really need to go. There are too many people, their head hurts, they take an aspirin or a Tylenol, and they go to the doctor because they can't stand their head hurting. Well, maybe their head hurting is a way in which to try to figure out maybe something's going on rather than to suppress the symptom. So... The priestly calling of doctors is not a statist calling. It's really something that the church should be encouraging and helping families to maneuver through these, you know, troubled waters. Yes, and I think it's very important that people do this with respect to health for for their later years as well, not just in the case of their children, because like I say, that's... Uh, where some of this medical kidnapping happens. And uh, the, the case that I've acted as an activist on involved an elderly couple uh, who, where the, the husband had broken his hip. And, you know, I think, you know, people need to be very careful about what they eat uh, to try to avoid, I mean, uh, I mean, he was only in his 60s. So there may have been some uh, problems with how he ate and how he exercised and that sort of thing that lent itself to to him breaking his hip. He broke his hip, and he was in the hospital, and his wife was up there with him, and 
she was obviously upset and she wasn't eating. So for some reason, the nurses became concerned about her and called Adult Protective Services, and they kidnapped her in the parking lot, put her in a nursing home, and then when he got out, they put him in a different nursing home, and uh, they put both of them under the, – they didn't have children who were active. I don't know all the details of, it, of this, but they didn't have children who were active in their lives, so um, they – that the court took jurisdiction of them, appointed a financial guardian uh, or financial, a, a person who uh, was over their finances, and they ended up having their car repossessed and their their house going into, uh, rep into foreclosure. Uh, the state appointed a guardian of the, the person and, who got mad and wouldn't go get them closed and ended up letting the house uh, go to almost ruin because they didn't do anything about the refrigerator or the freezer and the electricity went off and just all sorts of mess happening in their house. And uh, having an attorney representing them that was, of course, going to probably get paid from the estate. So it was a big mess. And the only thing that saved this couple from being stuck in a nursing home, probably on Medicaid for the rest of their life and having whatever possessions they own totally eaten up, uh, was that he used to be a uh, cameraman for a news show and his former co-workers got hold of it and made it, did a news story. So I saw it and got extremely angry, especially the part about a state agency worker treating them like that. And called the news, uh, called the reporter, and then started calling around, getting different attorneys for them. And I even had a uh, conference call with their state rep and uh, a, an official from the Department of Aging and Disability, where this crummy worker was from. And they they got sprung, and I think their house, with the help of one of their neighbors. They were able to save their house and, and get out of the nursing home. But there was no way they were ready for a nursing home. I mean, maybe he benefited from being in the nursing home just until his hip was totally rehabbed. But they were going to be stuck there because of what a judge failed to look at uh, in, in their records. I mean, it was just the whole thing was totally mishandled. But as soon as... Uh, a lawyer who had done a lot of these cases got hold of it from up there that that was found because of all the coverage. The judge let him go. And one thing the judge had done was appointed, the financial person he appointed was not even properly certified by the state. So one thing that people have to be wary of is not only these hospitals, but these guardianship courts because there are there's a lot, a lot of estate abuse. There are a lot of people who benefit from getting guardianship over these people and essentially uh, ben financially benefiting from them. So it seems to point to the fact that uh, having a large family is a good thing in your later years, having multiple children who can advocate for you or take you in. And the fact that we need to be knowledgeable of what's happening and then a call to 
Christians who are in the medical field, Christians who are in the social work field, Christians who are in law enforcement to be able to create the environment that protests from within rather than saying, well, this is what we were told to do. Well, I was just going to add to that. Yes, and, and when families start taking care of their uh, older uh, family members instead of the, the system that we have right now, they also have to be very vigilant about taking their family members to health providers because the, the same things can happen as with, with them as they, with their children, with the medical kidnap. Uh, it reminds me of a passage in Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 12, or is it 12, verse 10? I'll have to look and see, where it says, and it's in Proverbs 12, 10, that the, uh, the mercies of the wicked are cruel. And organizations like Child Protective Services and other agencies of the state, they discharge their duties and they pursue their ends based on a particular view of who people are, what man is, what medicine represents, and it is almost always humanistic and against God's law. I, I remember some years ago when I was living in another state in the Southwest, a story hit the newspapers uh, about a facility that had been in existence for about 75 years or so. And I don't know if it was always a state-owned facility. It might have started out as private. I think it did. But it was a place for people who had severe medical disabilities. I mean, people who were horribly mangled and, de and deformed for whatever reason. It was a place for them to, to live and to be nurtured and taken care of. And many of these folks uh, lived their lives there and died there under great uh, good care. Well, the story that hit the papers was that the state, which now owned the facility, um, realized that it was sitting on some very prime real estate. And so they were proceeding to shut it down. Um, and so there were going to be quite a few people uh, who no longer were able to, and the people who were there were just going to be allowed to die off the ones that were still there, or they were going to be shifted out to other facilities so the state could realize big profits from the sale of this particular land. And that sort of thing is not exactly medical kidnapping, but it's another example of which medical kidnapping is one of the cruel mercy of the state, the cruelty, uh, the cruel mercy of the wicked. And that's happened in my state. In fact, there's still a big fight going on uh, in my state with regard to one of those kinds of facilities. And the, one of the terrible things about that, there, uh, one facility like that uh, uh, where I live or in, in the state I live in has actually been shut down. And then there's another one that they're still trying to shut down that's being fought. But there's also breaches of promise because the land on which both of those facilities is located were given by wealthy families who had family members who had disabilities to be used in perpetuity for the purposes that they that the one is still being used for and the other was being used for and somehow the state has been able to in one case to override that and totally breached the promises that the family made. And apparently, under law, the family has no standing or ability to fight it at this point. And then with respect where the fight is still going on, it's as if they're just totally ignoring it. And the fight is political. It's not on the basis that the, the state is reneging on promises made. 
So if people don't understand how God's law is a law for all of life, they're going to be very, very deficient in terms of being able to see what's at stake, what happens in the general society when one institution takes jurisdiction where God hasn't appointed it. No good can come out of that. People might say, well, it's better than whatever their worst case scenario is. But they have to remember, violating God's law is violating God's law. And God promises that his word won't return to him void. So there'll be consequences when individuals, families, churches, civil governments live outside God's jurisdictional boundaries. So, Jerry, are there any books or things that you think that we might uh, benefit from reading that would help us understand this better? Well, there, there's, there's one book uh, that explores the entire family law system that I benefited from reading to, to get a, an overview. It, it has to do more uh, with uh, divorce law, but also touches upon this, and that's uh, taken into custody by Stephen Baskerville. But as far as other books, I have not read any other books on this. I've mainly read news articles about it and uh, seen these cases, the ones that I've had some involvement with and that I've read about and talked to uh, other attorneys about. So, uh, But I think taken into custody kind of gives a good overview uh, because the courts are always involved in this and it gives a good overview of that system. Charles, do you have any closing thoughts or book recommendations you think would be of value to those who are listening? Well, at the beginning, you referred to those commandments and God's law that expressly discuss the issue of um, the reason why kidnapping is considered a capital crime. And as we have done many times on this podcast, uh, we strongly recommend our listeners to read Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1, where he discusses in a little bit of detail, especially the 5th, 6th, and 8th commandments that um, address this issue. And I would also recommend Christianity and the State, um, which is another one of his books that uh, deals with this larger issue. Because, again, this is, uh, this is something that goes right to the heart of the centrality of the family and its uh, domination in our culture, and has been this way for many, many decades, unfortunately, by the State. It is an abdication of Christian responsibility. So anything our listeners can do to inform themselves of, of these issues and uh, we hate to sound like uh, like we've got one note, but we we are, uh, realize that Dr. Rustuni is one of the few people who has written extensively on this topic from a decidedly biblical standpoint. So uh, we strongly recommend his his works in that regard. And we should add Dr. Rustuni's book, Faith and Wellness, Resisting the State Control of Healthcare by Restoring the Priestly Calling of Doctors. And we started off talking about kidnapping is a capital offense. If you think of the capital offenses that are rampant in our society, abortion, euthanasia, in this case medical kidnapping, we need to recognize that as the people of God, we need to take a stand. And how would it be if 
the assault on family rights and family jurisdictions was met with charges that the death penalty should be the consequence for anybody who's involved with this. I dare say a lot of Christians would say, oh, that's too radical. But it would more than likely eventually solve the problem if people realized that they weren't acting without the potential of consequences. Yes, and it highlights the fact that we have sort of a selective view of, of what we consider to be radical. Um, the real radicalism is, is the accepted way nowadays, and the, the proposed solution, according to God's word, is looked upon as something ridiculous and theocratic. But again, as Dr. Rushdooney pointed out, uh, we're already in a theocracy. The question is, on whose side are you on? Well, Jerry Lynn, we really appreciate your um, speaking with us today. And uh, Andrea, did you have any follow-up questions for her? Or are we ready to wrap up? I think we're ready to wrap up, but I really encourage people to do some Google searches on this and to acquire the book that she recommended. And Jerry, it's always a pleasure talking with you and thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Until next time, if you have any uh, questions or topics you would like us to address, you can direct it to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Andrea. And to all our listeners, we bid you a farewell. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit KingdomDrivenFamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.